you to the script. Hey, hello. Um, Mr. Davison, cash is green here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. Before he was even old enough to drive, Boots Riley had the political chops of a seasoned community organizer. And as he grew up in Oakland, every few years added a new layer, working for farm workers, for civic justice, for workers' rights. His political hip-hop group, The Coup, recorded some notable albums. Then, this summer, the resume got a whole lot heftier. Riley is the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. It's his first film, and it is something to behold. It sweeps politics, music, race, art, labor and capital, culture and Oakland up into a tornado of comic parody that manages to be both preposterously outré and creepily real. The man who's found a new métier in moviemaking has something to say about his first and lasting love, the battle for radical political and social change. You've been an activist since you were a teenager. You've been very visible in the Occupy movement. So when it comes to raising awareness for change, how different is the power of a movie, are you finding, from the power of the street? With a movie, you have the power of putting out an idea about the world and for people to take it seriously. I think often the stuff that we see kind of just resituates the status quo and confirms it. But my hope is to talk about things that could be. I think that movements, even ones that I've been involved with over the last 50 years, have been mainly about spectacle, mainly about showing that people are fed up with something and not one that's power-based, whereas movements of the 20s and 30s used the withholding of labor as their power base. When they came out on the street in the 20s and 30s with 50,000 workers, they were able to say, these are 50,000 people who can shut down your industry. And that was just a demonstration. That was a demonstration of power. What are we demonstrating when we get 50,000 people on the street today? We are demonstrating it's great for us to talk to each other because it allows us to say, wow, here are people that are thinking the same thing I am and people that are fed up. But in the end, it doesn't have the ability to exact change. It doesn't have the ability to exact demand. And in that way, they're spectacle. So therefore, doing a movie is similar in some regards, in the sense that it is spectacle. It is talking about ideas. I was involved in Occupy Oakland, and we had the most people out of all the Occupies to show up because we called for a general strike in Oakland. And we got 50,000 people to show up because people were like, wow, this is something that might be able to do something where we all, even at a base level, even a Republican understands the idea that the people with the money are the ones with the power. And so we all learn that. But what we don't learn is that we are the ones that give the folks with money their wealth and that we can cut those purse strings or hold back on them and therefore have a conversation 
with power by using our power. Cash, I'm going to make you a proposal. I can see that you want to say no, but I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering you. There are so many people who like your character, Cassius Cash, who say, look, I agree with you, but I need to pay the bills. And if I have to cross a picket line to do it, so be it. I'll take whatever they pay me and I'm happy to get it. What makes these people feel they have any power? I think that people end up realizing in those situations that they are just pawns as well. And then they're by themselves, you know, can't get much done by yourself. Speaking as someone who made a movie and it took hundreds of people to make it happen. I can say that. And any movement that we see, any big change does take other people. I actually don't think most people would make those decisions. I think some would. I think we can relate to what he's saying. One hand, many movements have put being involved in social justice work as an extracurricular activity. It's something you do when you're off of work or on Saturdays or whatever. You know, people are like, I can't go be involved in that. i got to pay the bill. And we haven't been organizing in the way that help people pay the bill. And I think people will understand if there is a different kind of movement where it is organizing around those things, organizing around putting food on the table, I think we'll have a whole different look at these movements. People shouldn't have to get involved after work. They should be able to get involved at work. In the film, you make a lot of points by exaggeration, but it's not that much of a stretch. For example, in in China, when you've got suicide nets hanging outside the dormitories where workers live, and in your movie, I won't ruin it for anyone, but you make the point about workers being literally dehumanized. In the movie, there's Worry Free, which does lifetime contracts and You're guaranteed housing, employment, and food for life. These things don't exist in the U.S. It's not only, they exist in other countries, but they really exist here because they're making things for a U.S. corporation. So the exaggeration is only a movement in geography. There are so many things in this movie that when I wrote them hadn't happened yet. For instance, one character in the 2014 version that we put out at the line, that worry-free is making America great again. The reason that it has all these things that are becoming more and more clear to us now is because it's connected to our economic system, not just connected to who's in elected office. You also use humor as a storytelling device. When when you did Koo's first album in 1993, Kill My Landlord, that I immediately recognized from the old Eddie Murphy sketch on Saturday Night Live. Images by Tyrone Green. <laughs> Dark and lonely on the summer night. Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. The watchdog barking. Do he bite? So the steel wrapped inside the smiles seems to work a little better than all steel. See, I don't even look at it that way. I came up around organizers, a group of them who had come from the British mining strikes of the 80s, and then some who were older and had been in the old CP days and were like, these are jokesters. 
They know how to relate to people. They're full of jokes, and the way that they're pointing out things is really true. The reason why it's funny is this. Analysis is looking at how something works. And when you're explaining how something works, that means explaining the contradictions in it. And that point of contradiction is very similar to irony. And irony and humor go hand in hand. And so it's all one thing to me. It's not like I have to put sugar on it. When you wrote your screenplay, I think around 2012, Obama was the president. He was being reelected. But you also had Mitt Romney talking about the 47 percent. What has changed in those years that your movie now gets made and distributed? Movements. Movements coming to fruition. There's been the Black Lives Matter movement, Occupy, all of those things showing that people want something different. Also, there was a development process that had to happen between then and now. At that time, I hadn't been through the Sundance Labs, which gave people a lot more confidence in what I was doing. There's just a confluence of so many things that come together, that came together for this to happen. And I'm glad it didn't happen then. Why? Um, I probably would have been so eager for it to just happen that there may have been other things I would have compromised about. Through the process of, like, the Sundance Labs, like, I got a lot of good notes. But I will say that the screenplay was controversial in the sense that narrative structure-wise, it doesn't do everything it's supposed to do. And I say supposed to in quotation. And they're all giving me advice, some of them that are extremely contradictory to each other. And then at some point, some of them are getting in heated conversations about this. And then I realized through this that nobody knows what they're doing. Like, (laughs) it is up for grabs. You can do something different and fail, meaning it doesn't connect to people. Or you could do something different and it really works. But something true about people wanting a good story and a good story having to keep people on their toes to a certain extent. If we were to update a movement anthem from Maybe We Shall Overcome, could you write one? What would it sound like? What would it say? (laughs) It would probably be the song from our last album. song's called The Guillotine. It's a metaphorical guillotine because, really, the guillotine. Use the guillotine for real and just more of them pop up. It's basically talking about the idea that we have the ability to have a society where the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. So we don't have to have someone ruling us in that way. Is this a system that you would ever take part in as somebody who would run for office? No. Here's the thing is I know where the seat of power really is, and it's not in the elected office. Where is it? It's in the ruling class, the folks that have the money, for lack of more understandable thing, the 1%. You know, those are the puppeteers. Folks in office are the puppets. If we can make a movement that can 
get to the puppeteers, then the puppets will do whatever we want. Think about it like this. Nixon, affirmative action came in under Nixon. And it's not because he just had one contradiction where he had some progressive idea and was like, hey, let's do this. No, it's because the ruling class was afraid of this movement that was building. Let's take it back to even the New Deal. It's the biggest liberal reform we've had, we had in the 20th century, that and civil rights bill. That didn't come because of a big campaign to get FDR in office. That came because all throughout the South and through places like Alabama, Utah, Colorado, Oklahoma, there were mining strikes shutting down mines. In the Midwest at the same time, in the 20s and 30s, there were people occupying factories on the West Coast at that time. There was the longshoremen who were shutting down the ports to create the first time they made a union. In that milieu, and there being revolutions going on all around the world, the ruling class was afraid of an actual revolutionary movement happening. And because of that, we got the New Deal. And specifically because that's what the left focused on, was movements that were able to withhold labor. That's why. We got the New Deal. So if we're looking for extreme changes like that, and we want elected officials to make big changes like that, we got to stop only focusing on elections, because then we're going to get caught in this cycle. And right now, the next time a Democrat gets in office, all they have to do is be two inches to the left of Trump. The evil genius of Trump is that he's already got the Democratic Party and people that want him out to move to the right in order to get him out. You got people like cheering on the CIA and the FBI. This false nationalism where people are cheering on, let's only use politicians that only take U.S. billionaires' money. There are people that are doing this that know better. But the opportunism of electoral politics gets people lying to each other. Usually people ask filmmakers, what do you want the audience to come out of the theater thinking? But I'd like to know what you'd like the audience to come out of the theater doing. I'd like people to get involved in campaigns and get involved in organizations that can actually affect change. I'd hope that people are able to be involved in movements that take place at their job, create them, all of those things. For that to happen from the movie, that would be a lot. But that would be a great thing if it did happen. But hopefully what happens is organizations that are taking on campaigns to change things will use the knowledge. One of the reasons that people like this movie is that it talks about changing the world to get people involved in what they're doing. Well, Boots Riley, thank you. Thanks for having me. Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Dave Wine and Mike Heflin and edited by Heflin. The audio moments are from Sorry to Bother You from Annapurna Pictures, from Five Million Ways to Kill a CEO from The Coup, and from the NBC TV show Saturday Night Live. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. Slap them up and shake them up and then you know Let them up the flow and bait them with the dough You can do it funk or do it disco Yeah, I'm just about it, it was worth your waiting On the turf debating how